0: Hey there, listener. I want to thank you for listening to the National Land Realty Podcast. Now, please remember to like, share, and review our show. If you can, take a second, hit pause, and give us a quick review. It only takes about a minute to write what you think about the content that you hear on this show. Good or bad, we want to hear it. Thank you in advance. Now on with the show. Episode number 23 of the National Land Realty podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Now in this episode, we're talking about land improvements for quail hunting with Brandon Fowler, a land professional with National Land Realty from Montgomery, Alabama. Brandon has been guiding quail hunts for the last decade, as well as cultivating quail habitat and consulting those that wish to improve their land for quail hunting. We dive into what to do, what not to do, the tools you need and the timeline involved in improving land for quail hunting. So if you love quail, this episode is for you. Okay, I'm sitting here with Brandon Fowler out of Alabama. And uh, Brandon, tell me about your background. How did you how did you become a land agent?
1: I closed uh, a deal with an agent about two months before I joined National Land. I've always, always had an interest in land where where I wanted to go. And it just, uh, National Land felt like the best place for me. That was my, my best fit. And uh, I've really enjoyed being here.
0: Excellent, and you have a background in hunt guiding, right? correct i have been guiding quail hunts now for nine years nine commercially
1: nine years commercially and private i did a five years of commercial hunts at a plantation at a quail plantation i've been doing private hunts since that for uh attorneys law uh medical professionals ceos stuff like that
0: tell me a little bit about the the plantation setup that, that you were guiding on, not, not just not, not nothing to violate any kind of NDA or anything like that, but I was just curious, like what's, what's sort of the setup with those things? Cause those private hunts are not something that your everyday person gets to participate in. So what is that like for somebody walking on to like a private land hunt like that with a guide? So we'll start with the,
1: the plantation type commercial hunt, the plantation style commercial hunt. They have the, the one I hunted was like 900 acres They had five separate fields that they hunted twice a day. It was a put-and-shoot type hunt. They would go out, put put 30, 40 quail out before the hunt. Then you'd show up in the field, take usually two hunters, sometimes three, and you would hunt the field in two halves, basically, because they wanted you to hunt like half the field and then – shoot what quail or recover what quail point and shoot if we can as many as we can off that half and then a bird guy comes out on a bird buggy picks a quail up and he'll meet you in the field if you're not back and you have a little break at the truck you shoot the crowd drink some water talk about dogs let them talk about business and then you finish the on the other half and if you've got a little bit of time left because i like to i'd hit the whole field over so we hunt the two halves and then I, i would take the dogs and of course birds have been moved through and might as well just take the dogs and hit it again. You don't find other birds, even birds displaced off of other fields that other hunters are, are hunting. And, um, but it got to be, that was the same thing every day. The same thing. Every <laughs> I was going to say like, if
0: you're hunting the same field, are they, are the planter birds? I've, I've, I've run into planter pheasants quite a bit. Do they, do they maintain their cover until the last second? So you're, they're, they're fairly close when they go right the very very last second um, okay my
1: birds were were pointing some birds at less than two feet i mean they were on top of these birds and that's not good for young dogs it's not good for for me as a as a wild bird hunter because then when we get in the field and hunt wild birds the birds the dogs are like well crap i'll point that thing at two feet you know they want to get just as close to them as they can get and by the time they keep creeping in there the bird's gone of course you know and, and then um, I have an attorney friend here in town. He called me up one morning. He, was, he said, let's go hunting next weekend on my place. And I'm like, okay, we can we can do that. And So I put together uh, a hunt, and I went and bought some birds that were flight-conditioned birds just to make sure that we'd have something to shoot because I didn't know anything about this place. But I would do it a little bit different um, instead of putting the birds in down by spinning them in a sack and drop them in a place. I'd jump out to the field and open a pen up and like, see you. And if we find you, we find <laughs> you. If we don't find you, then have a nice life, you know? And it got to where I was doing those kind of hunts and we would hunt two hunts, but it would be a morning hunt and an afternoon hunt. And we would hunt, probably would cover 150, 200 acres in a morning, We'd hunt oh, on wow. buggies. Yeah, we'd drive buggies, let the dogs run. Dogs would point. Um we'd get off every, you know, cause and my dogs are pretty well broke and they know that once you go on point, we're not flushing a bird, you know, we're we're gonna point and do what we have to, to to let my handler or whoever shoot these birds. And so yeah, we started doing that and it just became that was more fun. It was just more fun than doing the commercial hunts and I can go to these people's property and hunt their properties, help them clean the birds, get everything done, get paid, load the dogs up, and go home, and not worry about you know the whole upkeep of the commercial hunt and and I can do it my way in my own style. And right, so that's I, what I started. It's,
0: it's less. It sounds like less catering because when you're when you're talking about the private hunts like that, you're talking about like it's not just lunch, right? Like this is like a catering. Right. It's like it's not just not just hanging out like this is a whole atmosphere it's 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 I, it's almost like a day day at the golf course right correct correct or, instead, or of, like- instead of
1: right instead of playing golf though you're shooting at birds and you know and then it got to where i was doing these hunts and i'd buy a pheasant or two and i'd throw a pheasant in this group of birds especially if i knew that i'd been hunting with these guys for a while you know and let's let's shake it up if i've done two or three hunts with these guys let's shake it up let's throw something in here they've never seen or they won't see in <laughs> south alabama and i'd throw a pheasant in there and just we'd get out in the field and I, or i'd mark a quail. i'd take a quail that out of a box that of these 200 quail that i'm going to turn loose on this property that we may never see again but i tie like a uh flagging to it a piece of you know just (laughs) somebody here flagging to its foot and i throw it out in the field and i would tell them that the person that shoots this there's a bird out there that you'll know when it gets up if we ever see it and i tie it loose so that eventually it'd fall off yeah but i was like if a bird gets up and you shoot it whoever kills that bird gets a 100 bucks and then they'd start taking bets on who who shoots this bird and it, it it became um and it still is. I still do it now. It's just it's a fun day. You, these guys get out there; they can they can be free as they want to. We can ride around on machines. We can watch dogs work. We can not shoot a bird. One day it rained on us, and we just sat around the camphouse and played poker all day. And just you know, it's just one of those one of those things. And you're not constrained con- constrained to that um, that commercial thing, you know. Because when you go on this commercial hunt, they guarantee birds. You're guaranteed to get the I don't guarantee anything. I guarantee a good time. I guarantee a long walk, and and we hunt, and and we get in a lot of wild birds, and that's what kind of kind of one of the things we started seeing was we're on these places where we have been doing these hunts. We started seeing wild birds, and we started seeing third generation birds, birds or second generation birds, birds from last year that were left over, you know, that were thrown out here or the year before, two years ago, and. By the second generation, those birds are wild. I can promise you those birds are wild. They're not there's no tame that's left in those birds but you can't get close. <laughs> They're gone. <laughs> they know. And um they've been living, you know, a couple of years out in the out in these savannah grasses and they've got to get away from hawks. They've got to get away from predators. They understand how to, to survive and man, it's it's changed the quail hunting in my area at least.
0: That's fantastic. So yeah, let's get into that. So so you've been working with land to cultivate land specifically for and you're talking about quail, but as you mentioned, that the land that you can cultivate for quail are also big draws for for deer habitat and you know other game species. But uh, you know, with your love being in quail, let's let's talk about how how that comes about. Like when did you first start working with land to sort of like change it to be a better habitat for quail um
1: i kind of toyed with the idea when i was i guess 15 years ago but about 10 years ago i really got into it i really started trying to change the habitat let's see let's not change it let's um improve it i don't like to use change because a lot of times change throws in a bunch of invasive let's improve it let's put natives back um, and then doing some forest, ten, uh, thinning and native grass plantings and stuff like that. But, and we did plant some invasive or introduced species, we'll say introduced, you know, you plant some plum trees and plant some shrubs and stuff for, for cover. You need that cover for those birds until you get some grass, get some cover up, some native cover up, and then just nuke that stuff, get rid of that, that crap that, that was introduced because it's not good for the habitat anyway. Um, but I've, I've been doing it for about 10 years, and I've, I've, we've really seen a change in how it works. Uh, cutting timber burning is a big thing. You know, I know in your neck of the woods, you don't know, fire's not good up there. But in the deep south down here, fire is it. You know, you can run a fire through something and open up that native seed bank. It, it'll change the habitat back to native habitat make it look phenomenal.
0: I had a, I was talking, there's a, I brought this guy up a few times now. It's almost like he knows what he's talking about. Uh, I've been talking to to Dr. Grant Woods, who specializes oh, in white properties. And that dude is a certifiable genius when it comes to deer, but conversation that we were having about quail. And I just, I had never thought about it. And just the way he said it, it was like, why did I never think of that was he was talking about quail habitat and he's like, you can't have all this brushy stuff and you can't have all this thick stuff. And he's like, "You got to remember quail have little legs. And I was like, wow. <laughs> like, really, that's like, right. It changed my perception of quail habitat. It was like, I, how did I never, okay. Yeah. That's, that's pretty obvious now.
1: <laughs> right. They've got, they got short legs and they, they've got to have understory to walk under. They've got to have that, that stuff that, they can walk through, walk under, and not get tripped up on and get caught up on, and it's gotta have escape routes. If and without the escape routes, it's quail's not gonna survive. So and fire, fire is the is the the key. And the property that I'm fortunate enough to hunt and be a part of is a thousand acres in Macon County. It's on a rotational burn. And they don't burn the entire property at a time it burned about half of it and that allows the wildlife to move from the burned section into the unburned stuff while it's burning and then as it's growing back they come back there and they eat the forbs they eat the, the bugs that are there they, they they love that ash they get into that ash and i don't know what it does for them but they get in that stuff dust in it and, and just eat that stuff up and then start to up, you know, and then they're in there eating bugs and, and forbs and stuff like that. So,
0: yeah, we always call this storm trooping. When, whenever you see the quails like charging through the grass, uh, quails, right? I'm using the plural. Whenever you see quail charging through grass, you, you can kind of see the heads bopping through there. It's like, oh, we just call this storm trooping. But uh, like, yeah, they, they do. They find that, they find that understory and kind of just tunnel their way through to get away from things because they're not, they're not as visible but they're also not hindered um, in, that right. kind of, in that kind of environment. So, so when you're, when you're looking at, at building something up, like, you know, tell me about sort of what sort of your approach is like, you, you look at raw land and what do you want to do to make it optimal for quail? So and we'll like, take, my I think property. you just touched on it, but I want to like look at it like a process, like, okay, let's take this piece of land that is not good and make it good.
1: We'll take my property in Mississippi,
0: my okay. family property.
1: It has not been managed for 20 plus years. Um, I now that I own the property, it I get fussed at, I get yelled at, I get told I'm stupid. I get you know all this punted up by family members because I come in there and I cut 40 acres. Immediately cut 40 acres, cut every tree on 40 acres, and uh, they're like, "What are you doing?" But my plan is, and it's a a long plan, it's not a short, you know, it's not one of these things going to happen overnight and you've got to see the vision to do it. But what I would do on a property like that, um, so I cut the 40 acres. That's going to be, I'm going to make it a savanna area with some native grasses. I'm going to plant some long lake pines. I'm going to plant some uh, mast crops in there, plant partially planted oak trees. It'll never make any cash money for that 40 acres, but the rest of the property will. And then I'm going to take the rest of the property and I'm going to cut it to 70 to hundred trees today. Everything else is gone, and in that understory, I'm going to plant grasses, warm season grasses, late season grasses, fall grasses, you know anything that I can can make that improve that soil condition because that soil has been standing under these trees, getting no sunlight up to the ground for 20 years. I mean, it's just dead. it''s, it's it can, you can say it's sterile. And then um, once we get a a stand of longleaf planted, you know, we'll start burning that. We'll start burning under those oak trees. Once they get up big enough, they can handle the fire. And then get rid of the stumps and start planting for grass, for birds specifically, which also helps the deer or helps the turkeys and helps your other wildlife. But start planting um, small seed crops or small seed plants and um but i my goal is to do it all native a lot of places plant um like grain sorghum and stuff like that for them, but i want to plant all 100 percent native grasses i want to take this property and go native all the way no we're just stay away from anything that's not a non-native species and see if i can get the quail to come back to that property there's quail on some properties adjacent to it and there's some quail on the property in areas where it's open where there's already pine plantations but we're going to start burning and we're going to start fertilizing and start planting stuff that that need to be planted and get rid of the invasives. There's a ton of invasives, a ton of privet, ton of kudzu. Uh, get rid of holly bushes. I, I despise a holly. I think it should just go away. There's no reason for it. There's no use for it. it just just, just disappear. I know some birds, some songbirds eat the holly berries, but it does no good for me. It just, I hate, I, I hate hollies. They just, they just need to go away.
0: <laughs> um, well, and you, When you're talking about thinning the trees in like, that's, that's kind of an important topic too. When you're looking at rejuvenating the ground underneath the trees, like you're talking about relieving crown space to allow sunlight through. Are you, so when the trees that you harvest out, are you going to, uh, are you looking at timber yield on that? Or is that just take it down? That's timber yield. It'll be okay. solved with timber yield. And that's a good way to
1: put some money into the property. You know, you can take that, take that timber that you cut and put that into your plantings, or put that into reforestation in some areas that need some some reforestation stuff done, or fertilize, or road building, or building ponds, or building, you know, um, wetland mitigations and stuff like that. You can use that money from that timber to to offset some of those costs in doing that.
0: Right, right. Depending on how much you have too and what they're, and sort of what the timber market is. Yeah, it depends right. on what the timber market is too. Last few years, it's like solid gold you know, when you're going through it. But so, so, okay. So the first thing you're looking at is identify areas that you want to open up for animals. And in one area that you mentioned in particular, 40 acres, you're, you're leveling that. Like that's completely open field, open area to where, you know, anything that wants to get out there in the open can. And then you're opening up the rest of the property to allow more sunlight, more growth, and then using native plants, seed-bearing plants in particular, and and you mentioned some forbs in there. So so you're really just moving through, developing the understory, and then um, are you are you do you burn first before you go on going through with the plants, or is that because I, so, I know that there's going to be some like some 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 trash on the ground, right? Like it's like the deadly, right. there's going to be a ton of trash.
1: Yeah. There's, yeah. A, there's a ton of trash on the ground now, but what we'll do is, um, put some fire lanes in, come in and spray it It'll spray it really hard under that understory with to kill anything that's sprouted back up since the cut and then burn it and try to run a slow fire through it so that it's hot and it'll burn everything up and it's gone. And then, um, try to I'll, I'll probably root rake it or take a dozer skid or something through it to move that stuff that didn't burn up and windrow it and then burn it again or pile it and burn it again and then come in there and start planting it and just i'll plant sections of mixed seed grasses you know native grasses that and um, a lot of that there's some grass there there's grass seeds in that soil that have been laying in that soil that are dormant that will come back they will they will come back once you start opening that understory and get some sunlight on them and get a little moisture to them. And they'll, they'll start sprouting
0: and growing. Gotcha. Gotcha. So landowners that that go into it should look for opportunities to thin opportunities to open the land up rather than, because there, there can be a misconception that like the more trees, the more cover, the more animals. It's like, no, when you get more trees, you cut off that sunlight and everything is like gone underneath. Um correct. Okay. So so what else? Like what are what are sort of the next steps that you're looking at? I mean, are you looking at water sources? Are you looking at you know, more foods? Um,
1: you you need more food. Uh one of the things that uh I, I look at, and then especially my place in Mississippi that we're we're talking about now, it borders a river. I've got one mile of river front. And so I don't really worry about water. Water's this there. If the river goes dry, then we're all in trouble anyway. So, But um, they've got water. But, you know, we saw a drought down here this year. I'm sure you saw a drought up there. And the lake on the property here in Alabama that I hunt, that lake dropped three feet this year. So that was the only water source primarily on the property when we hit that drought. Which was good for timber companies. Now the timber companies love it when it's dry because they can get in there and they cut timber. But the, I don't like it when it's that dry because it forces all the wildlife down to that one small central loci- located area around that one water source. Um, so water sources aren't that big, but you need cover. You need. I like to leave some bedding areas. I know that's a little different, but I've watched deer bedding grass right in the middle of one of those savannas under plantation cut pine trees and my dogs walk right past them and the deer never move an inch and it's because they know they can hide in that stuff but if i can give deer travel corridors through some of that savannah in a bedding area so you've got a wetlands area that's wet and you can't really get in there and work it turn it into a bedding area let the deer let the deer take it over let them have it and they can live in that, they can travel through it, then they just come out into those spins and feed and eat and and stuff like that so it, it it works out
0: for both worlds so how how long of a process do you usually look at if you're taking something from scratch right? if you're because i you know it, it takes time to get this stuff done. So if you're taking something that looks pretty rowdy right, and you're trying to build it up and build a quail habitat on on acreage. What sort of timeline are you looking at in general? Because it really, you know, it depends on how steep it is. It depends on, you know, how much water there is, all kinds of variables. But, you know, in general, if you're working it, what are you usually looking at?
1: If you're looking at at raw ground and you need to come in and plant some trees and you need to um, do some other plantings and some burning, you can start with a briar patch on raw dirt and turn it into a quail habitat in about three years.
0: Three years okay, and and mm-hmm. what are like the the you know, there's a million tools you could use for that, obviously, like I mean everything from just the tools you need for for a burn, right like you gotta have drip torches and you got to have sprayers and you got to have you know like but right, to be able to go in there and be like, okay, I can take my lands now and build it up uh, you know, w- what's sort of your primary things that you use? A tractor
1: a big thing is a tractor a tractor a bush hog um a hara behind that tractor to break that ground some if you need to i really don't like to break the ground i talked to you know i've listened to dr grant woods and he doesn't like to break the ground you know he likes to do it use a seed drill but and um to crimp the grass and stuff like that but he doesn't like to break the ground too much um and i kind of agree with him it's not beneficial to the soil to, to break it because you're you know your native plants can have six foot of root base in that, and if you break that, cut that grass off, then you're you're shortening your root base down to two or three inches, and and that's not really good for your for your habitat. But uh, a tractor, a hara, in some places where you just absolutely have to to break the ground, uh, a good bush hog, front end loader on the tractor is a must. Forks on that tractor to move seed and move stuff around with. Um, time, just be patient with it. You can't you can't rush it kind of have a plan when you go into it knowing that you know you can turn this into habitat in three years but your trees that you're planting pine trees and oak trees you're talking 20 plus for them to get to get up there and, and get some canopy on them so be mindful of that Dude, that's not going to happen overnight now you can take something's that got a few pines or a few oaks on it and thin them out and and do some work around them but if we're talking raw dirt just nothing there you're it takes time, but you need a tractor and you need you need a a good bush hog. Lay your fire lanes off. That's where you're really going to use your hair up is to to plow your fire lanes, get that dirt broke up, you know, and and then burn the crap out of that stuff. Just light it up and let it burn. It's it's amazing. I'm a huge fan of fire, as I said before. Just burn it, let it burn everything that can burn. And then go back in there and see why it didn't burn. And then take your tractor with a bush hog if it's small enough. Bush hog it down and then burn it too, because it's <laughs> going to be beneficial in the end. You're putting so much back into that soil. It's so beneficial for the burn. And then get on a regular burn schedule and burn, say you burn everything this year. Next year only burn a quarter of the property. Leave that other stuff to let it let it grow. And then two years from now, burn half the property. But and but don't burn the same quarter in that. You know, when you burn half that you burn this year, burn it another half of the property and then just start rotating the property. Then cut it up in chunks and, and leave spaces that, have, that are not burned for two or, three, two or three years. And you'll start seeing more wildlife. You'll start seeing more wildflowers.
0: And that's, and that's what's, what's fascinating happening. about the burn schedules, right? Is like fire will actually activate seeds that are not otherwise activated when that happens, and I just I never even thought about that. And I, it's it's amazing what it does, and it like cultivates the soil. Um, and, and I was I, I've been blown away because, like you said, I come from an area that where you know you you put all the fires out because just too many fire. Northwest is like a fire haven, and right? And talking to, I've talked to a, an agent of ours, uh, Mark Lewis, or uh, sorry, not Mark Lewis, Mark, Mark Anderson. I'm going to have to cut Mark Anderson. Mark Anderson. Jeez. Anyways, uh, you know, certified, you know, fire guy that was telling me all the ins and outs of it. Like, to where, like you have to time with the wind. You have to know the wind schedule. They, they like, they know the humidity schedule They will test it out. Like, it's a science. It is a, like. It's, it's amazing. A,
1: it really my, is um, my wife's cousin is a smoke eater he he fights forest fire and he burns for uh, the forest service US Forest Service here in, well, in Mississippi and um, he is brilliant I mean down to what hour what minute what's the humidity gonna do what, where we're changing from which direction we need to burn bro. because that's what he does it's, his whole life revolves around fire and it's it works the uh, fire works really well here you know I was listening to a podcast today while I was driving on wolf hunting in Idaho and the guy on the um, it was cutting the distance podcast their new episode that came out uh, to, either this morning or yesterday and they were talking about wolf hunting in Idaho and where a fire went through and how much it improved the habitat even there where the fire went through um, in Idaho because it cleaned the understory up
0: yeah, it does it really does improve the ground. I think the, the, the thing everybody's running into now is the the level of brush accumulation and fuel accumulation that is lower on that ground. The whole it's like it's one of those things like yeah, it's a great in theory but there's so much un there's so much unmanned, you know, ground out there. There's so much land. You know, 70% of Idaho is open land. That, right you light a match and let it go. And it's like, sure. Yeah, it will burn everything, but it will burn everything. (laughs) Yes. It's it's, like catastrophic at this point. And it goes up like a blowtorch. And it's one of those things, like, I'm so interested about stuff in your area. Just one, the topography is more friendly to it, right? Like you can light something on fire there and it's, it's not as extreme. So the acceleration of the path of the fire is not going to be as extreme, but you get into some of the canyons, you know, west of the Rockies and Tiny little fire, and it's basically burning straight uphill. And so, right, this wall of just apocalypse running up a hillside. So it's, it's it's interesting. Um, so yeah. So so for for you, when you're managing a habitat, uh, fire is a big part of it. Like it's almost like a tool that you use, right? Yes, it is a a very, very important tool. One of our most
1: important tools is fire.
0: And then when, um, when you're talking. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, go
1: ahead. Go ahead. We'll we'll get into that later. Go ahead.
0: Uh, well, I was going to ask you about the food. You were mentioning um, native grasses, native seeds. Are you are you looking at, are you looking at seeds for quail that that have a specific mineral quality or nutritional quality, or is it just you know whatever they're going to eat? It's basically what they're going to eat. But okay. what I've found,
1: and I've killed a lot of quail in green grass. You know, early season birds or late birds into the, or you know, early spring. And what I found is these birds are eating like clovers and, but they, if you've got grasshoppers, if you got something that a grasshopper wants to eat, those birds love grasshoppers. They'll get in there and just go to town on a bunch of grasshoppers. And, and you find that in those grasses that, but you need that seed, you know, to regenerate your seed bank, keep it, keep it coming. But, um, you know, I'll clean a quail, well, and, and even when I'm hunting wild birds out west, like I did in Nebraska and South Dakota, this trip, I open them up. I look to see what were you eating, what what was in here, what like do you and, really? I do. I open their crawl I want to see. I want to see what's in the crop. What have you eat? Because that that tells me a lot about what the birds doing, um, and it also helps me pinpoint where I need to hunt when I'm out there. If I find these grasses are I find these berries that they're feeding on, if they're feeding on wild blueberries or they're feeding on rose hips or they're feeding on something like, okay, well, we're going to hunt this area. You know, this is what we're, what we're looking for. And and I now even do it with my quail, even hunting here and been hunting here in some of this property I've hunted four or five years. And I still know what they're going to be doing. I open a quail up and I see what's in the crop. I want to know what you ate. What were you feeding on today?
0: That's such a good idea, but I've never thought of it. I've done it. You do a fish right? Like you'll check out fish to see what they're feeding on and know what to throw. But I've never thought about it with birds. It's totally it makes sense though.
1: Yeah. Just open them up. See what's in the crop. See what they're eating. And a lot of times you'll find that, you know, they're eating grasshoppers or they're eating a specific type of clover or they're eating berries. There's some kind of little, it's not a rosehip. There's some kind of little red berry that I found out West, um, that these birds, when I was shooting rough grass in Wyoming, they were feeding on some kind of little red berry. I don't know what it was, but I learned like what that. a current or something like that. And I was like, okay, if we find those, we're going to start finding some grouse because that's what they're they're feeding on. And inevitably, we would find grouse. They would be
0: feeding on that stuff. That's such a good piece of advice. That's a good little nugget right there. I Side note, have you ever had... I I read about rosehip tea during the winter, and you know, like harvesting rose hips, and I decided I was going to try it. And the the thing I didn't know about it is like you really have to filter it. I was used to like you could throw the plants in there, boil it, and you got tea. And I did it, and I didn't know about all the spines in In the rosehip. And I took a drink of that, and it was one of the worst experiences of my Like, I had an itchy throat for like the next week of my life. It was so terrible. So, that's just a side note on rose hips. It's just, you know, fun stories. <laughs> so, I was, was like a drinking Wyoming. a porcupine, man. It was terrible. Exactly. I'm not going <laughs> to do it.
1: I was in Wyoming two years ago, and the rose hips were, were full then. You know, there were rose hips everywhere. And I saw people picking rose hips up and down the road. I'm like, why are you picking those things? Because I'm doing fool with them. So I stopped and I cut one open and I tasted it. I was like, that is the most horrible thing I've ever tasted in my life. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not eating that. And then the I asked a lady is- what she was uh, what she was tea- doing, and they were drying it, making tea okay. out of it.
0: Yeah, you can make tea out of it. It's pretty good. And it's it's uh, what is it, the vitamin C. In rose hips is something like four times anything else you can get a hold of. It's something ridiculous that like it has more vitamin C than. Anything really? else. Yeah, yeah, it's a big thing for like health and stuff like that. So it's it's up there with uh uh, like elderberry and stuff for for health purposes. Anyways, I know we're talking about land, but it's a fun sidetrack, right? <laughs> right? Right. Right. It all
1: But um, yeah. So you know. With bush hogging, and I've learned this in the last few years. We bush hog a lot. We we take a we've got a batwing bush hog, we bush hog a good bit on our roads, keep our roads up. But this year in particular, I saw young quail in September. These birds were like teacup sized quail and a covey of quail in September. And that got me to thinking about um us bush hogging. what what are we doing? What kind of detriment are we having to the quail population on these late hatched birds? They're seeing birds, you know, in September, those birds should be big enough to fly. And they could fly, but they were teacup size, you know? So why, uh, uh, keep off your property, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Keep out of your ditches, keep out of your, if you have to keep a road up, it's best to take that road and spray it with roundup at a weak rate to keep the grass from growing just slow the growth a little bit than it is and especially if you're looking at if you want to do this in june july august in our area spray it with a weak rate of roundup to keep it from coming up and instead of putting a tractor and a bush hog on it because if you're got if you're trying to grow quail your those quail are going to be little they're going to be tiny and you're going you're going to cut them up with a yeah. bush hog yeah. that can't get out of the way
0: and or even if they get out, like hit the eggs or something like that, you know, you can kick, you can kick up nests as you're going through. If it's, you know, that time of season, because you can't time out that that first brood, you could probably go like, okay, it's it's always a certain type of year, but then you can see like second and third broods, you know, like pop up right. like during the year, and then yeah, you're right, you can take down the population that way. Yep, and you can you can be very
1: detrimental to your population of birds. So, I would say. Bush hog late, late September, October. If you're going to, to bush hog, and I know people are because they're getting ready for both season, They want to put food plots in. You know, they want to want to hunt deer. You know, deer's king down here just about. You know, everybody wants to shoot a whitetail, but um, it doesn't hurt. We have long growing seasons. Plant your stuff late in the season. Plant it in October. Don't plant it in September. And if you've got to get in there, as I say, spray it with something. Spray it to keep your grass from growing, but don't pushhog it. Then come in there and clean everything up late in the year when people are going to be using the farm or going in and out. Most deer hunters are going to bow hunt a few times early in the season, and then they'll, uh, they're will going to lay off, and they're going to be after November here before they go back in the woods, really, or mid-November or later. So then while you're down there bow hunting or whatever on your property, then do your work when you get done bow hunting, and and you'll be okay and you're not, going, you're not going to kill your
0: quail. Right. So how, how many acres do you want, want to have to hold, like, say, a, a few cubbies? You know, what, what, what sort of – and I realize, you know, the best answer is, yeah, get yourself 4,000 acres. You'll definitely hold some quail, but it's not always everybody's uh, possibility. So, like, what, what do you want as far as acreage? And I realize you also have to account for lead flight as well and neighbors and all that kind of thing, but. Right.
1: And I've heard this a lot in a lot of different ways. And I talk to, I've talked to people about what a quail do. I know that a quail for one quail will cover 40 acres in a day. They can, they will walk on that 40, you know, that 40 acres in a day to feed. Now he may travel two miles from here during the spring looking for a, a mate, but on a typical day they're covering 40 acres and I, a lot of people say well i've always seen quail at this spot so there's a tree that they always you know where they're always quail. there may always be quail there but that's not the same covey of quail that's always there oh, so right. it, 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 people think they're in their in their mind that that's that same covey that they're always seeing it. it's not it's going to be another covey or maybe two coveys working in the area or three coveys working in that area and they're just kind of interspaced together you know working together and when you're we're talking coveys i used to think of a covey as a group as a family group you know this is we're coming up as a family what that normally is is the male bird and the hen and their offspring for that year that's their cubby and then when those birds split up late fall late winter those birds are going to split then you're going to have a set of you know a pair of birds a male and a female and a hen and, you know and a, and they're you know that's going to be a cubby now those cubbies can join and be big cubbies you know you can get two or three cubbies together but you're going to see most of the time it's two adult birds and some sub adults as your cubby
0: so that's interesting. So, so as the season goes on, you will have new coveys emerging, just by nature of the quail leaving their family and starting new cubbies. Correct. Correct. That is, I'm. I, I love learning new things. I'm not, and I I hunt quail myself, but I haven't ever like dove into it. It's one of those like I, you know, I have my Brittany spaniel and she finds birds for me, but you know that's about all I, I jump into. So. When you, when you are like building up your property for, for cubbies, is there, are there certain environments that you want to have sort of like for, for roosting, for relaxed, you know, that kind of thing for quail? Like, do you, you mentioned having a tree that they're always in or a bush. And I think a lot of people see that, like you get to those thick bushes and they kind of chill out up in the branches, but that's not like their home range. Like that's not where they're, you know, they relax there for a little bit, but they're, they're bouncing to other places. What's sort of an optimal sort of setup that you want to do? So, what we have found on the
1: property that I hunt and other properties that I've hunted, if you've got plums, and I find this in the wild birds too out west, if you have plum bushes, wild plums, you've got quail, don't They love those dried up wild plums when late winter, they fall off and hit the ground. That's what they're going to eat. Because, you know, quail are ground nesting birds, although I have seen a few quail in They're on they're on the ground they're they're ground nesting so you know you want some kind of cover overhead cover like that for them to get up under and and roost under at night and um sorry my my dog caught my eye out there anyway <laughs> but you want those birds those birds love to um to feed under those those plum bushes especially late winter and then most of the places I found them roosting for the night have been in like bicolor color ha- hardwood areas, you know, or some kind of hard mass, something like that, something they can see. So they can see overhead predators at night and they, and also if it's windy, they're going to be in a more grassy area. If it's, um, they're going, they're going, so you've got to have a multitude of different cover for those birds to get into. There's no one answer, you know, one thing that you, okay. you really want. It's, it's a mix. You need that, that happy medium mix.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So what's the, what's the best piece of advice? What did, what do you absolutely, you mentioned, you know, use tractors, burn, make sure you have food, make sure there's like a water source. Um, anything else that you would add for, for a landowner to sort of cultivate their land to, to bring in quail and by, by proxy other animals time don't time, time is
1: time you, you give it time you're not going to see this happen overnight um a lot of things that i see is detrimental to the birds and and not so much to whitetails but to, to wildlife in general is row cropping you know people come in a row crop and they row crop ditch to ditch well you're not leaving any cover um leave a little bit of cover ask if you if you're leasing ground or your ground butts up to a farmer or something like that. Ask the farmer, "Hey, can you leave me just a little, little buffer there for a little bit, or or something?" Or ask the farmer, "Let's not plant it all the way to the ditch on this side. Let's leave that little bit open and let those birds work that over." um You know, cutovers are a big thing that quail like to get into. Four-year-old cutovers, it seems to be really good for quail because it's got just enough overstory for the birds to get underneath. You know that and can live underneath that, and they're safe from predators. Um, So time is beneficial. Give it time. Do the work that you have to do. Do the plantings. Do the cleaning. Do Get your grasses going. Even supplement your birds if you want to. Go buy 500 birds. Go buy 1,000 birds and turn them loose. Don't turn them loose and then take your dogs and (laughs) throw your dogs on them. Let them get wild, yeah. Turn them loose. You're going to lose about 80% of those birds anyway to predators. But, you know, if you buy a thousand birds and you lose 80%, you've still got a good number of birds that can survive and, and raise birds. And then you're looking at second, third generation birds and those birds will be wild. They will be wild in second, third generation.
0: So on that note, and you probably already have touched on it. I think I've caught a couple of things, but what would be the worst thing you could do? What what is a do not do if you want quail on your land?
1: Do not do, if you want quail, <laughs> is um, do not, if you find quail, don't shoot them. Don't shoot them down to detrimental numbers. I mean, You know, lay off your wild coveys. Um, don't let your property grow up and to be a thick mess of crap that you can't walk through. Because if you can't walk through it, they can't walk through it. Um, and, and I know that sounds weird for a little three-ounce bird, but if you can't go through there, he can't go through. He's going to get in there and get, it's going to get thick, and there's a good home for, for snakes and predators and stuff like that. He's just not safe. He needs to be able to fly. He needs a flight out of there. Um, burn rotation is one of your big things, so make sure you burn. Don't let your property grow up. Manage your property like it should be used, and it's also more enjoyable for you as a landowner. It's not so much, um, oh, I own this piece of property, but I don't ever do anything with it. If the property is where you can enjoy it and you can take your kids or grandkids and you can ride around on the property and watch the wildflowers bloom all the way through the year and let your granddaughters or daughters pick flowers or wives pick flowers, they enjoy that property just as much as you do. But you get the benefit of the wildlife on the property also, and you get the the benefit of, hey, uh, let's go down to the property. And they don't feel so bad about not wanting to go down, you know, about you going down there because they get to go with you and they get to hang out and, and do things like that. So.
0: Gotcha. Perfect. So again, Brandon, I, you know, I, I got you here for an hour and I want to, I want to let you get on with your day, man. And, uh, but, I, I, how do people get a hold of you? Where do you usually work and what do you specialize in? Um,
1: I specialize in selling land. I mean, that's what I really want to do, but I, I'm a quail hunter and they can get me through NLR. You can get me on my cell phone, my cell phone. Um, NLR has that just reach out there send me an email give me a phone call i'll come look at the property i'll tell you what it needs um i'll even help people you know let's get started and this is what i think you should do but you know my advice is what it is it's my advice this is what i've seen i don't have that degree to back it i've got real world experience and i've seen what what birds can do and i know what can happen
0: you know there there is a similar vein that runs through every conversation that I have with with any kind of land agent that I talk to, and it's it's you have there's a certain kind of person that goes in to specialize in land and it's people that love land and so everybody I talk to that 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 works with land real estate it's just like they just want to talk land it's like like you just said, just give me a call, I'll tell you exactly what you got and what I think you that you need and there's this consultation there, but it's also just like an enjoyment, right? Right. I, I enjoy it.
1: I, I love to take. I love to see people's property turn into something different. You know, I I hunt with um, some guys south of here, and I tell them, I give them advice. Hey, man, you need to do this. This is what would really set this place off. You know, it'd make this place different. And that place has been in a quail plantation for forty years. Maybe even longer. But like if you did this, it it really really changed the way this this looked. And but they it had gone away from looking at it as um, hunting birds and raising birds. It had gone into just a wreck property and hunting deer and stuff like that. So I can I go I, I see it from a different set of eyes. I see it as a different view and what I would like to see it. And sometimes it works. Sometimes people think i'm nuts but i still enjoy it
0: (laughs) (laughs) but that's the fun of it right like that's the absolute fun of it well hey brandon um i appreciate your time man it's good it's always good talking to you so uh pleasure chatting i appreciate it man yeah man thanks for having me this concludes episode number 23 for the national land realty podcast discussing land improvements for quail hunting with brandon fowler from montgomery alabama You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land from NationalLand.com. Quick reminder, please like, review, and share our show. Our show doesn't get found if people don't talk about it and hit that like button. So if you found this show valuable, others will too. Make sure to share it. As we get reviews, we'll share them on the podcast. Now, thank you again, and we'll see you next time.